Today we begin a brand new series about hope. And we're going to look at hope through the lens of the Old Testament story of Noah and the ark. Now last month we looked at the story of Jonah and the whale. So you might assume that there's a summer at sea theme cooking here. But the water setting is entirely coincidental. Over the next few Sundays, we're going to talk about a hope that lifts. And we're calling this series Out of the Ark. Out of the Ark. You know, over the last uh, five months, we've been mostly indoors, while the world that we know has been swept away. Right? Noah was basically in quarantine with his family and with lots and lots and lots of pets and uh, uh, cooped up for a very long time. For, uh, for many, many months. And when Noah and his family left that ark, they entered a whole new world. It was new. It was different. It was unknown. And yet they trusted God. They had a hope that sustained them, preserved them, lifted them. And that's the kind of hope that we're going to talk about in this series. Hope in our day is an underrated word. It's kind of a weak word, really. Right? We say, do you think the Tigers will win again? I hope so. You can always hope. Do you think it'll rain next Sunday? Uh, hope not, but you never really know. Do you think the cancer treatment will work this time? I sure hope so. Uh, we, we use the word hope in our day like it's some kind of wishful thinking or dream. Biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is weighty and certain and life-changing. Uh, look at uh, what the author of Hebrews, uh, how it, he described a hope here. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It's a great image if you picture that boat being knocked back and forth by the waves, but there's this anchor for the soul. We're holding us firm and secure. That's the kind of hope that we're talking about. The hope that we're talking about in this series is a hope that lasts and a hope that lifts. The unfortunate truth is, for a lot of us, that we don't discover this kind of hope until all other hopes have failed. G.K. Chesterton wrote, it's only when everything else is hopeless, it's only when everything is hopeless that Christian hope begins to be a strength at all. And then later he said this about Christian hope, it is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. It is as unreasonable as it is indispensable. It's unreasonable because it is present in the direst of circumstances. It is undispensable because without it, we cannot go on. Take a look at how dire things became in the time of Noah. Genesis says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. You think things are bad in our world, things get evil? They're here the thoughts are only evil all the time. That's how bad things got in, in Noah's day, and then these, the, these striking, sobering, difficult words, the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. These are awful words. The Lord regretted that he had made the human race. 
His heart was troubled. Our actions can trouble the heart of our God. Uh, God says He's going to start over. He's going to wipe away all living beings on the planet. God's going to push reset on the human experiment. The inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was all evil all the time. And then we read the first words of hope. All this calamity, all this difficulty in the words in the world of, of Noah. But Noah. Here's the contrast. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And this one sentence, you begin to see there may be some hope in this awful story after all. But Noah. This is no kid's story, friends. A lot of people mistakenly assume it is. Uh, that's why we decorate baby rooms in Noah's Ark motif. Uh, we did for our firstborn. We had the animals around the crib and we got the Noah's Ark border and, and we got the Noah Ark lamp uh, that we still have been unable to part with due to sentimental reasons. Right? Uh, Noah's Ark is, uh, remains a very popular uh, theme for baby rooms, but it's only because parents have not thought this through. If we thought this through, we would not do this. Right? Someone would say, I'm thinking about decorating the baby's room in a Noah's Ark theme, and someone would say, oh, I love that story. You mean the story where God brought a global flood to, to wipe out all living creatures? Oh, it is so cute. This is not a cute story. This is a difficult story. This is a troubling story. It's a disturbing story, but in the end, it is a hope-filled story. There is hope for a new day and a new world. Through the unknown and in the waiting and in the hardship, Noah remains a person of unwavering hope, and we can be too. The characteristic of hope we're going to talk about today is this, a hope that carries us through the unknown and the unexpected. A hope that carries through the unknown and the unexpected. And I'm borrowing some language here from my colleague Shane Farmer, who pastors our sister church in Denver, and uh, the state of Colorado is still very much in lockdown. And the basic structure for this series comes from Shane, and I borrow it with his permission. What does hope do? How do you have a hope that stays afloat? Three things we'll look at today, three lessons from the story of Noah. And the first one is this, a hope that hears in light of who God is. A hope that hears in light of who God is. Hope that hears unexpected, hears the disturbing, hears the troubling in light of who God is. Uh, look at, again, what Genesis uh, 6 says in the story. God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Is, is, this, is this an easy message to hear? This is a, a, a very difficult message that God is telling to Noah. Sometimes hope is defined as this belief that tomorrow will be better than today that things will get better, that, uh, that, that the news will change, that circumstances will shift somehow. But imagine that the news you hear is that tomorrow isn't going to be better than today. Might be the same, might be worse. 
So let me change up our, our definition of hope from just this, this belief that tomorrow will be better than today. Let's, let's change the definition slightly. Hope is a general positive expectation of the future, and here's the important part, based on who God is and who we are to Him. Hope is a general positive expectation of the future based on who God is and who we are to Him. Now, to have this kind of hope, of course, uh, you need to have some knowledge of who God is and some knowledge of who you are to this God. So those of you that have have walked with God for many years, uh, you have this understanding of who this magnificent, uh, grace-filled, wise God is and of your relationship to Him as His beloved child. For those of you newer to your faith or newer to the Bible, you may have to work at this a little bit, but you can get this very quickly and very early on from the Scriptures, from your own life, and from the experience of other people. So when you hear bad news, we filter it through the knowledge of who God is and who we are to Him, and that changed the way we receive news and the way we face the unknown. When you face the unknown, you can do what David did. His word recorded in Psalm 27. He said, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong, and take heart, and wait for the Lord. David knew God, and he knew who he was before this God, and that allowed him to have hope in the midst of the unknown. Secondly, in addition to a hope that hears in light of who God is, we need a hope that heeds what God commands. A hope that heeds, a hope that does what God commands. And the story of Noah, God gives a lot of very specific commands, uh, almost blueprint instructions for this ark. In Genesis 6, uh, God says, go make an ark out of cypress wood, make uh, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you're to build it. Very very specific. The ark is to be uh, 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving an opening between the roof that's one cubit all around. Put a door on the side. Make lower, middle, and upper decks. All these very specific instructions about this ark. And it's just, it's just massive. Uh, here's a picture of my friend Corbin and he and his mom and dad. Last week we're at the Ark uh, Encounter in Kentucky. Maybe you've been there yourself. A place where they have built a life-size replica of Noah's Ark using all the details prescribed in the, in the book of Genesis. And this thing is just massive. You can see it here uh, related to some of these animals. These aren't real animals, but they're models here. You can see, I think it's a giraffe and an elephant. And you can see the scope and size between this biblical ark. Uh, You can see here's the door, exactly where God told Noah to put that door. And when you see the whole thing in its length here, you can just uh, take it in. It's it's 510 feet long. That's one and a half football fields plus 51 feet high, uh, just enormous. And, And here at the ark encounter, you can go inside and you can see the different levels of where things might have been stored. It'll hold uh, uh, 450 full-size semi-truck containers, so it's got room for lots of animals and lots of supplies. And again, uh, here's a picture of, of Corbin. And if you were on that ark with Noah, you would probably want to wear a mask too. This ark is just massive. 
It would have been uh, an incredible undertaking to build. And then at the end of the description, these uh, amazing words uh, that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Wow, all these instructions, this massive job, and Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah heeds what God commands. This is especially striking because it's quite possible that, uh, that there had never been rain before. Scholars differ on this, but you know, in Genesis, the creation account, it says God created an expanse or a vault to separate the waters from below and above. And some people think that's just talking about the atmosphere of the water up here. Other people think, and the Ark Encounter people um, believe that what it's talking about is there was a canopy, a sort of canopy that was created, and uh, rain did not come down uh, initially. And that what happened in the flood, essentially the canopy was released and the water came down. And this is a pretty plausible theory, actually. Genesis 2.5 says the Lord had not sent rain on the earth. By Genesis 2, there was not any rain. Genesis 2.5, a river watering the garden flowed from Eden. That The plants were watered maybe not by rain, but by a, guard, by a river system. And then, uh, and then we see these words in Genesis 7. In the 600th year of Noah's life, Noah was 600 years old when he built the ark, uh, which is why the canopy theory says when the canopy broke, you begin to see lifespans decrease from hundreds of years more to 100 years. Uh, and again, those numbers always in the Bible, you have to wonder if they're metaphorical. Numbers often mean something, but it could make sense that lifespans changed when the whole ecology and atmosphere of our world changed. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And this is the first mention of rain. So imagine this enormous task for Noah. He's building an ark, and he had never even seen rain. God tells Noah to build an ark, a big boat, and there's no reason to put that big boat in the water. The water will come to you from the sky. Imagine taking that all in. Imagine explaining that to your neighbors. What are you building, Noah? I'm, I'm building an, an ark. Uh, why? Because it's going to rain. What's rain? Noah says, I, I, I don't know. Uh, but God told me to do this, right? Hebrews eleven seven says, by, by faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark. He didn't understand everything. He didn't get the whole plan, but he built the ark uh, anyway. He had a hope that heeds. Uh, he could not have possibly understood everything that was going on, but he did everything God told him to do. He had a hope that heeds, a hope that does, even in the unknown. Have you ever known somebody that just walked away from the whole idea of God because of something they faced in the unknown? The unknown frightened them away. But let's heed what God has already said. We can already do the things that we do know and that God has said. Noah had a hope that hears in light of who God is and who we are to God. He had a hope that heeds, 
what God commands, that does what God commands. And thirdly and lastly, he had a hope that holds, a hope that holds on to what God promises. A hope that holds on to God's promises. Uh, you see this covenant language in the story of Noah in Genesis 6, 18. God says, but I will establish my, my covenant, very strong word, my covenant with you, Noah, and you will enter the ark. You and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. Uh, God establishes a covenant, a commitment, a binding promise. And how many times do you think Noah had to go back to that promise? When his, when his neighbors were making fun of him. Didn't, 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 God, didn't God say this to, to, to me? Didn't God say this? Yes, yes, he did. And when they were in the middle of the water, you think he had to go back to that promise? What was it that God promised to us? God made a promise. And remembering that promise got Noah and his family through in the midst of the unknown. God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. It's the language of the Bible. We see this in, in Hebrews. This is about a, a, a different covenant. When God made his promise to Abraham, this is the Abraham covenant, since there was no one greater for him to swear, uh, God swore by himself. Uh, following the, the custom of covenants in that day, saying, I will surely bless you and will give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. After waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And Noah had to do the same thing. God was making a covenant a binding promise with Abraham here. I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will bless you. And in a deeply symbolic covenant ceremony, God passes through these cut pieces of animal uh, to say, I will put my life on the line for you. You can trust me. I will keep my promise. Now, in order to hang on to God's promise, you and I have to know what God promised. We have to know what God said. We have to know the promises contained in the Bible. And I want to encourage you to daily read and reflect on the Scriptures. To daily read and reflect on the Scriptures using a simple rubric we've talked about here before, the four R's, to read, reflect, relate, and respond. Read, reflect, relate, and respond. When it comes to discipleship, lots of research has shown the one spiritual discipline that helps people at every stage of spiritual development, whether you're brand new to spiritual life or whether you're very mature, the one practice that works in all stages and helps people grow is Bible reading and reflection. The research shows that sermons are more helpful to people in certain stages of spiritual life, same with small groups and some other spiritual practices, but scripture reading and reflection is helpful to everybody at all stages and it always promotes uh, growth no matter where you are in your spiritual journey. So I want to encourage you to engage the scriptures. And again, these four R's could be really helpful to you. The first R is read. Just read what that verse or passage says. You might underline or highlight and you can underline a highlight even in your electronic Bible. There are ways to do that. You just, just read it, just read it. Uh, number two, the second hour, reflect. What is God saying in this passage? What is the author trying to communicate to 
the audience if it's a letter. And then, uh, three, you relate. What is God saying to me? What is God's word for me? Is there an encouragement? Is there a command? Is there a correction? Is there a rebuke for me? What does this mean for me? You relate it to yourself. And then uh, number four, respond. Do what you heard God say, right? Read, reflect, relate, respond. Read, reflect, relate, respond, wash, rinse, repeat. And uh, this simple rubric can help you get into the scriptures. The research shows it's not really enough just to, to read the Bible. It's the reflection, the thoughtful reflection on the Bible that gives this discipline its potency. You want to read and reflect. No need to rush. The goal isn't to get through the Bible. The goal is to get the Bible through you. You know, our church has finished a year-long study on the Sermon on the Mount, and this could be a good time to go back and read that sermon again, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, we, did, we just read it. Read it again and again and again and again. And there's so much in that great sermon of Jesus that applies to what we're going through right now in our world. Soaking in the Sermon on the Mount will make you a person of wisdom and hope. And our world right now needs more people like that. Let's not miss this unprecedented and once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to demonstrate and share unshakable hope in the midst of the unknown. A hope that hears in light of who God is and who we are to God. A hope that heeds what God commands. And a hope that holds onto what God promises. Let's pray together. Well, God, we thank you for the stories of the Bible and for the wisdom of all the scriptures. Plant now this seed of your word in our lives. We want a hope that floats in the unknown and the unexpected. And so we each ask you now to search us and to speak to us. Is there anything that I need to think or do differently in light of what I have heard today? Show it to me. Speak, Lord. Give to each of us ears to hear. We thank you for the example of Noah, whose hope was found not in circumstances, but in you. Give us the ability, God, to rise above. Give us the privilege of playing a role in your plan for the world. Give us unflappable hope. We do pray now together for our world, a world again being reshaped by global calamity. The news cycle pauses from the pandemic only to report hurricanes on the American coast and an explosion in Lebanon. In addition to these physical threats, so many people all over the world are facing discouragement, cynicism, and fatigue. Oh God, heal our land and heal us. We thank you that there is a hope that is an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Anchor us now. May we be hands of help and a voice of hope for our world. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next time we get together, we're going to look at the story of Noah once more. And we're going to look at hope in the waiting 
Hope in the Waiting. I'm really excited about the message that's going to come next week, Hope in the Waiting. I can't wait to give it to you. Until then, uh, let us receive now this benediction. That word benediction literally means a good word. So receive now this good word from God's word, from the words of the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, Romans chapter 8. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May this good word sustain you and strengthen you and sustain and strengthen this world through you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for joining us today.